Welcome to the Navigating Healthcare podcast from Compass Professional Health Services, an Alight company. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Bricker, and I am the Chief Medical Officer and one of the co-founders of Compass Professional Health Services. Welcome to today's Compass monthly webinar, High Cost Claimants, Top Causes, Top Solutions, and Top Results. And I want to tell you, we had one of the highest numbers of registrations ever for this webinar. And obviously, with the preparation for 1-1 and open enrollment season, everyone is incredibly busy. So for all of you to take the time to come on to this webinar, I am just honored and privileged, and I am just going to do everything I possibly can to make this a great use of your time. We have, we have existing clients, we have existing broker and consultant partners, we have um, new folks that are joining us, some of them for the first time, and we have folks from Kansas and Michigan, Ohio, Florida, Tennessee, Minnesota, Texas, California, I mean, and that's only some of the places I was looking at. So I'm just from all, all over the country. And that's one of the just the great things I love about employee benefits and healthcare and health insurance is that we all are facing in many ways the same challenges and we're all looking for solutions. And so let's talk about that. I do want to, of course, bring up that Compass is now an Alight company. So we're super excited that Compass was acquired uh, by Alight over the summer, just a few months ago. So there's a picture of yours truly. Uh, I'm a general internist. I did my residency training at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore Medical School at the University of Illinois of Chicago. And I literally was the only person in my entire residency class who did not go on to subspecialize because I love treating the entire human being. I did not become a physician just to treat the heart or the lungs or the stomach. I like people. And the residency director said, you realize Eric, that uh, subspecialization is a sign of maturity. And I said, well, I'm going to take the road less traveled, and I'm actually going to treat the entire person and not just one particular organ and organ system, and it has made all the difference. Uh, I actually used to be a hospital finance consultant before going into medicine, so I used to be in with to all the claims that you and your your plans and your employees and your the broker benefit consultants work in, but I was on the flip opposite side. I would help docs and hospitals get paid. Uh, because many of you know, uh, it's actually very hard for doctors and hospitals to get paid. And so they hire outside consultants to come in and show them how to do that. So it was a wonderful experience. This was back in the 90s when all the managed care was going on. And I'm like the first person in my family to become a physician. Regardless of all that, every single doctor I talked to said, whatever you do, do not become a physician. And I said, well, I want to do it anyway, because I don't want to avoid the problem. I want to try to help fix the problem. And that pure, And that problem was misaligned incentives, bureaucracy, runaway cost, highly variable quality. And fortunately, with all of you on the webinar, we've been able to make some progress there. So I'm super appreciative of that. We've got some exciting news that Compass actually won the 2018 Marketer of the Year Award for the DFW chapter of the American Marketing Association. So hats off to our whole marketing team. And we, again, were honorable mention for the Compass blog for this year. And actually, our Compass Health Pro app won Healthcare App of the Year. So um, just a small amount of tooting our own horn. So a little bit more about Compass. So we're located in Dallas, Texas. These are actual Compass employees pictured here, founded in 2005, actually closer to 300 employees now, um, just under 2,000 employer clients. We charge PEPM. Implementation is very easy at under two months. 
a new milestone for us. We've actually helped people navigate the healthcare system over 1.5 million times now. We had a small celebration. We took a video of it. You'll be able to see it on the blog this week. It was a lot of fun. And uh, utilization is about 25% of the employees over the course of the year, which correlates with sort of the 80-20 rule about how 80% of the claims are generated by 20% of the employees. And in fact, because we're talking about high-cost claimants today, we're going to be talking about those that small population of employees that drives so much of the cost. We're going to dissect the causes, we're going to look at solutions, and we're going to look at results. And so this is going to be a very detailed webinar. You know, if, if there was a such thing as a, as a beginner, intermediate, and advanced level of Compass webinar, this would be in the advanced level. So of course, as always, the slides will be available afterwards, and I'll give you my email address at the end if you would like a copy of these slides. But the first thing to do when thinking about high-cost claimants is, one, they are not a monolith. They are not all the same, and they are actually very different. So in terms of thinking about how to diagnose, you know, how to look at these high-cost claimants and then how what to do about it and what your quote-unquote success rates are with those various high-cost claimants, it's highly variable. And so I don't want you to think of these as a monolith. They're all very different. And we're going to talk about how to separate out sort of the wheat from the chaff in terms of being able to address high-cost claimants. So let's first look at their diagnostic categories. So what are kind of the main three diagnostic categories that high-cost claimants fall into? So number one is musculoskeletal, uh, oftentimes uh, abbreviated as MSK. Total direct costs for musculoskeletal about 20 billion a year. Indirect costs are about 45 to 54 billion a year. How that specifically manifests itself in your member population and their claims are with things like joint replacements. So a total knee replacement where the average cost is about $49,000, close to $50,000. And again, that's the allowed amount. That really is just for that episode of care related to the knee replacement. So in other words, if there would be like um, rehab associated with it, whether the inpatient or outpatient rehab, the actual cost itself, uh, and the total hip replacements a little less at 40,000. Now keep in mind, that is highly variable within the existing insurance network where that allowed amount could be as low as 20 or 25,000 or as high as pushing 100,000. So we had talked about that ad nauseum in terms of price transparency and network maximization, but just know that that average there is in the middle of a very wide range. Um, it also falls under spine. Okay, so where the spine surgeries can be excessively expensive, more than $100,000. Scoliosis surgery is routinely more than $100,000. That's for a lateral curvature of the spine. Typically affects women more than men. Typically affects teenage, um, young adult, and middle-aged women. It is, uh, it's, it's, in, it's inborn, it's, it's uh, of genetic nature. Um, a discectomy infusion for herniated discs, a laminectomy for nerve, nerve impingement. So this is quote unquote back pain that can be caused by a variety of reasons. Interestingly, spine surgery, it can be performed by one of two very different types of specialists. It can either be done by orthospine, which is a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery, or it can be done by neurosurgeons. And neurosurgeons actually do the majority of their surgery on the spine. So in terms of disease burden, the brain actually doesn't have as much that is intervenable by surgery as the spine. So people think, okay, brain surgery, so the tumors and taking out, you know, blood from strokes, et cetera. But that's actually not the majority of what they do. The majority of what they do is actually spine. 
And so there's actually kind of a turf war between orthospine and neurosurgery because they actually do like the same types of surgery. Uh, and if you talk to an orthospine physician, they'll be like, well, don't go to a neurosurgeon. They don't really know what they're doing. And if you go to a neurosurgeon, they'd say, well, don't go to an orthospine surgeon. They don't really know what they're doing. So just know that this is one of those areas where there is uh, there's somewhat of a, uh, of a turf war, if you will. Uh, and the other thing that really contributes to this, by the way, total knee and total hip replacements are really for severe chronic arthritis, osteoarthritis in the form of degenerative joint disease. And so the reason, and same thing true, the reason that discectomy infusions for herniated discs and laminectomies for nerve impingement, again, that's actually, be, your spine is a giant um, joint, right? You have, be, you have bending in your spine and twisting. And so the wear and tear, otherwise known as degenerative joint disease, otherwise known as osteoarthritis, the main cause of that is a combination of age and weight. And so that's really with obesity rising over the last 20 to 30 years in America that has really contributed to people of younger and younger working age needing to get joint replacements and spine surgery. Because at the end of the day, just the gravitational pull of the additional weight on the joints, uh, both the knees, hips, and also the spine, is that's really the underlying cause. So category number two, cancer. Um, and by the way, depending upon the group, these are not in necessarily order for your group. So in other words, some groups might have cancer as one, other groups would have musculoskeletal as one. Um, now, for cancer, the average cost of treatment's over 150,000. Um, the cause of high cost claims is we see so much now in the prescription drugs that will show up both in the medical and in the RX spend because many of those infusion medications and specialty medications are um, on the medical claims, okay? So, and they can be $1,500 to over $25,000 per infusion. And oftentimes that could even be for the same medication within the same insurance network where a hospital-based infusion for the exact same medication might be $25,000 and a, uh, a infusion center or an office-based or even a home health-based infusion could be much less. Uh, and it's largely driven by these specialty medications, which the sort of fancy medical term for them are monoclonal antibodies. And that should not be thought of as traditional chemotherapy, okay? It doesn't really make you nauseous. It doesn't cause your hair to fall out. It doesn't have all those bad side effects. And they actually can be very effective against the cancer. This Herceptin here is specifically for a type of breast cancer called HER2 new positive cancer. And guess what? It's incredibly effective. I mean, it's a wonderful medication. Uh, but depending upon its lo its site of administration, in other words, hospital versus outpatient center versus um, another location, it could drastically change that, uh, that price. Uh, now, there is also obviously traditional chemotherapy as well. So like things like adriamycin and cycl cyclophosphamide, which again could be highly variable in terms of their cost. Uh, and then some of these drugs are also uh, pills. So there's more and more cancer therapeutics that are also available as pills. So Revlimid is for multiple myeloma, which is sort of similar. It's sort of similar to a blood cancer like leukemia. And it is $20,000 for 28 pills. Um, so not only is it obviously the prescription cost, but then it's obviously the hospital-based care as well. So the actual surgery 
to remove the tumor. Uh, and in a working population, the most common types of um, uh, surgery that we see on cancer is going to be breast, colon, lung, and then skin cancer, of which melanoma tends to be the most serious. And then radiation therapy as well. And that occurs, again, mostly with breast, colon, and lung. And that radiation therapy, the surgery, and the chemotherapy with or without a, a monoclonal uh, specialty medication, sometimes they're used all in combination. So it, 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 uh, a woman could have breast cancer that requires surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Likewise, colon cancer could require actually radiation therapy first to shrink the tumor, then surgery, then chemotherapy uh, afterwards. So uh, all that combined um, leads to very high cost claimants. And then uh, cause number three is cardiovascular disease. And so that are, are things like heart attacks, which uh, the medical term for that is a myocardial infarction. Uh, average cost of treats 18,200 stroke. So here, stroke would actually fall under neurological diseases when you look at your like diagnostic categories in your claims. However, two thirds of strokes are actually what are referred to as ischemic strokes where the blood vessels in the brain get blocked, which is actually the exact same process as a heart attack. It just happens in the brain atherosclerosis leading to narrowing and hardening of the arteries. You have a blocked artery, which then causes uh, the blood vessels downstream to not get blood flow. When those blood vessels die in the heart, it's called a heart attack. When those blood vessels die in the brain, it's called a stroke. And so, um, it, and so the process, the, the pathological process in the body is actually the exact same for both of these. Um, the other one-third of strokes are actually uh, hemorrhagic strokes, which is actually bleeding in the brain, oftentimes from like a brain aneurysm, but that's a completely separate animal. Okay, now diabetes actually has its major manifestation in cardiovascular disease. So oftentimes you'll see costs associated with diabetes in your cardiovascular spend, and likewise, you'll see spend within your cardiovascular spend that's actually related to diabetes. And it all has to do with the way that it's coded. And it literally has to do with the order on the bill at which the, uh, the hospital or the physician's office has put that particular diagnosis. So if they put heart attack one, then it would probably roll up to cardiovascular disease, whereas they put it diabetes one, then it would likely roll up to your endocrinologic spend. Now, you could be in the hospital from a heart attack and have diabetes, and like it almost is just at the discretion of the medical coder which one they put first. So just be so that's where when you're looking at claims again we're going to separate out sort of the wheat from the chaff when we're talking about looking at the claims itself because they're telling a story, and we're going to look into how we can use those claims to tell a story, and then of course dialysis. So kidney failure, again similar to that stroke. It's actually the same process of hardening and narrowing of the arteries causing decreased blood flow to the kidneys that results in kidney failure, which then requires the dialysis. And the number one cause of dialysis in America is diabetes. So again, it's, it's the same pathological process. It's just manifesting itself in a different part of the body. So, and why is that important? It's because the way that we are going to potentially intervene on these high cost claimants is exactly, is, I wouldn't say exactly, but it's similar for all of these cardiovascular diseases because they involve the same disease process. 
now. I figured rather than talking about high cost claimants in the abstract, it would actually, actually be much more helpful and applicable to do this for an actual employer client using actual claims data. And these are this is an actual uh, Compass client so that we're not talking about this in theory, but we're talking about this in reality. And so certainly if you are a self-funded plan, this type of claims level detail you can gain access to. Even if you're a fully insured plan, there's oftentimes a lot that can be gleaned out of the standard reporting from the carrier. And some folks even, obviously the larger fully insured groups tend to be the case. Uh, for some groups, they can even, even if they're fully insured, they can still get a fair amount of claims detail outside of the standard carrier reporting. So don't, just because, you know, don't necessarily think that you can't access type of claims information. You, you, you might very well be able to. So this particular group, you can see that they have about 2,400 employees on the plan. Their annual spend is just under 26 million a year. So if you do the math on it, it's about $10,000 per employee per year in spend. And that is like pretty much in line with like the national average, right? You know, it's about, you know, 10 to 11,000 per employee per year. Family coverage, you know, is super high. It can be upwards of 20 to 24,000. Individual coverage, we see a lot lower at like four to 6,000. So when you add all the families and the dependents and yada, yada, yada in there, you kind of average out at about $10,000 per employee per year. So I'd say that, you know, this is a, a quote unquote right in the middle sort of group for Compass. However, again, it's highly variable. We have groups where their per employee per year spend, we've seen it as high as like 18,000. And we've seen it as low as like 6,000. So it's not tightly bunched around that average of 10 to 11,000 per employee per year. It's actually uh, highly variable. And you can see this group actually performed pretty well. So their trend actually went down slightly from $796 per employee per month to $779 per employee per month. So that 854 dotted red line is 8% trend. But let's break that let's break that down, right? So let's look at year over year. So the dark lines are year two, the lighter lines are year one. And what I want you what I want to draw your attention to here is that look, musculoskeletal disorders is number one. But the important thing to note here is that pain and discomfort is number two. And pain and discomfort is actually a diagnostic category. However, the vast majority of the causes of the pain and discomfort is musculoskeletal symptoms, right? So back pain, joint pain, et cetera. And so um, it's important that you actually combine the musculoskeletal disorders with the pain and discomfort and also with injury and poisoning because the vast majority of injury is actually musculoskeletal injury as well. So when you're talking about these three categories at the 3 million, 3 million, and the 2.3 million, you're actually talking about, you know, 8.4, 8.5 million really in musculoskeletal um, amounts. So this is, for this group, this is like by far and away number one is MSK, right? So you really need to combine those. Whereas cancer is a distant second, circulatory disorders is a distant third. Uh, okay, sorry. Please feel free to ask questions. I was just reading through one of the questions. However, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to answer these at the end. But thank you for asking those. Please feel free to ask along the way as well, and we will try to address them at the end. So um, you can see here cancer is number two, circulatory is number three, digestive here is four, and 
you can see also that the largest drop was not necessarily in these high cost claimant areas, but it was in these other areas of, well, circulatory is high cost, but in digestive disorders, respiratory. So there are obviously things that can be done. So it's important to know that addressing your high cost claimants versus your non-high cost claimants is an important way to break up your overall cost containment strategy. However, you can't only address high cost claimants and you can't only address non-high cost claimants and expect there to be a um, expect there to be a difference or decrease in cost. Essentially, you can, there's more than one way to skin a cat, if you will. And so just know that this group actually had decreased trend because of reductions in these other diagnostic uh, categories, which can, which can be done through a variety of mechanisms that we're going to be talking about later. But, so, musculoskeletal really grouped these three together, cancer, circulatory, all right? The rest falls by the wayside. Notice here, endocrine a lot lower. You might think, well, hey, diabetes isn't really much of a problem for me. But that actually might not be the case because they actually might have quite a bit of their diabetes manifesting itself, not only here in circulatory disorders, but also here in nervous system disorders uh, for strokes. Now, for the same group, let's look at how that claim spend then breaks down by spend per claimant per year. So in other words, here in the graph on the left, we're looking at the percent of members of the plan that had less than $1,000 of spend for the year in total. And as you can see, for both years, it's the majority of the folks, right? 60% of the folks had less than $1,000 of spend, maybe like one office visit, maybe nothing, right? And depending upon the groups, there's a good 20 to 40% of the folks that might have like zero spend for the year. And there's, you know, not to stereotype, maybe it's a lot of the guys in their 20s. Okay, so next up you have, um, folks with one to 10,000 of spend in that year. And you can see it's about 30, 35%. Then you can see folks that have 10,000 to 250,000. That's about 6.8% of those folks on the plan. And then for folks that have over $250,000 of spend for the year, that is 0.1% of the members of the plan. Now let's look at how much money was associated with those buckets. And let's look at it in reverse order. So you can see that for folks with over 250,000 per year in spend just for each individual plan member that totaled 15% of the plan's total cost for the year likewise for folks that had between 10,000 and 250,000 they uh, were 52.5% of the plan's total spend so if you add up the 6.8% and the 0.1% about 7% of the members on this plan were responsible for 67% of that group spend. So that's referred to as stratification, right? Whether it's the 80-20 rule, 80% of the claims are generated by 20% of the members, or the 550 rule, where 5% of the patients drive 50% of the spend, right? So this pretty much falls in line, right? Where a little more than 5% of the patients drive a little more than 50% of the spend. Okay, now on to the next slide. Another way to break down this spend is then by 
procedure category. So inpatient procedures, in other words, inpatient stay. So this is like by CPT code, not by diagnosis code. So this could be a diagnosis, this, this inpatient stay could be um, labor and delivery. It could be a severe pneumonia. Um, it could be a joint replacement versus outpatient versus imaging versus lab versus PCP versus specialist. So what's important to note here is that the number one category by procedure is actually outpatient. So that that just shows you that even for these for these people, many of these high cost claimants are hospitalized at some point or another over the course of the year. But one should not assume that 100% of the costs associated with that high cost claimant are associated with the hospitalization because there is pre-hospitalization care and post-hospitalization care that can also be very expensive. And guess what? That pre and post-hospitalization care is often delivered at the hospital. The majority of surgeries performed at a hospital are actually outpatient surgeries that couldn't be, formed, be performed at an ambulatory surgery center. So most surgeries at a hospital are not inpatient surgeries like a cabbage, a coronary artery bypass graft. That is an incredibly complex surgery. You're going to go to the ICU after that, and that is never going to be done at an ambulatory surgery center. However, the vast majority of surgeries at a hospital are actually outpatient. Then we talk about imaging and lab and primary care, and that's fine, but look at number two. It's specialist-driven, and that is because in America, our healthcare system delivery is completely backwards, really from the rest of the industrialized world. So other countries that have just as high, if not higher uh, quality of care and outcomes in America, it is, but do so at half or a third of the cost, largely do so because they use much more primary care and much less specialty care. So this incredibly high usage of specialty care is often then leading to a lot of this outpatient spend as well. And one of the things that we do at Compass is we actually try to increase the primary care spend for a group because the amount of increase in primary care spend is actually much more uh, than made up for by the decrease in spend by both specialist and outpatient. And in fact, in countries like Germany, they actually see the doctor more frequently than Americans do. So people are like, oh, Americans are just hypochondriacs. They just go to the doctor all the time. In Germany, they go more. But because they're going to the primary care physician and not a specialist, that overall cost per visit is so much less than in America that their overall healthcare spend is less. So it's important to note this outpatient source and this specialist source of spend. So now for this same employer, let's take a look at some of these actual individuals here, okay? So we said that 0.1% of this group was greater than $250,000. So that literally was seven people. And those seven people accounted for about three and a half million dollars of spend at a cost of about a half a million dollars on average per person. Note the other 3,928 members on the plan only added up to 1.5 million. So in other words, seven people were more than twice the amount as the other almost 4,000 plan members, okay? So these folks right here 
are the actual seven people. And these are, are random numbers that have been assigned by Compass, so there's no connection back to these people. But you could literally think of these people like as like Mary and John and Steve and Sally and Bo. Okay, so look at this person ending here in 58. They had a million dollars of claims during this year. Next person, 548, et cetera. So now let's look at some of these specific people. Okay, first person, that million dollar claimant was a child with cancer. And the reason I'm showing a picture here is because we're talking about real people with real lives, and these are not just numbers on a page or on a slide, okay? And I know that all of you know that, but it's important for us to remember that these are, this is incredibly serious stuff that we're dealing with, stuff that frankly is about a lot more than money. And so when we think about how to address these high cost claimants, it's important to keep in mind these people and their lives and their families. And, and when you're looking at these claims, first of all, know that looking at the diagnosis codes of a claim, you're like, okay, here's what's going on with this person. Okay, what in the world does all this mean? How in the world do I make sense of this, right? You've got a bunch of terminology that may or may not be um, like, telling you anything. And then two, you have these highly variable amount dollar amounts here that just happen to add up to uh, $1 million. And what I want you to note you here is that typically in reporting, look how this is reported. A, B, C, D. It's alphabetical. Guess what? That's probably the least helpful way for these claims to be reported. But I left it like this on purpose because this is how it also often is sped out. It's like, no, that is not the best way to sort this out. Look at this, malignant neoplasm of the adrenal glands. Okay, look at that. And that's 200 grand of the spend. And then look, a secondary malignancy uh, a neoplasm, uh, so a secondary malignant neoplasm to the bone. In other words, there was metastasis. It spread from the adrenal glands to the bone. And that was for another $204,000. But notice also here, the chemotherapy, antineoplastic chemo, is 284 grand. And you're like, how in the world could there be 10 grand for a cough? Okay. Well, what that probably was is that was probably a hospitalization related to an illness, probably while they were immune, why they were immune suppressed from the chemotherapy. And so, and it just happened that that number one diagnosis that was written down for that hospitalization was the cough. So if you just looked at overall, um, uh, categories, you'd be like, oh, we've got a lot of spend in our respiratory area. It's like, no, it's not. I mean, that's just, this is related to the cancer. Okay. Again, $69,000 related to diseases of magnesium metabolism. Listen, I will tell you as an internist, the majority of people that are admitted to a hospital actually have low magnesium levels. And it's actually routine for us to have to give them IV magnesium. And that's important because magnesium is very helpful uh, with your kidneys to maintain the appropriate electrolyte balance. Okay, fine. All that medicine aside, this person does not actually have a magnesium disorder, right? So you don't want to look at your claims and be like, oh no, we have this huge problem with magnesium. No, that's not what's going on at all. It is, you know, first of all, a lot of the chemo is very uh, toxic to the kidneys as well. And so you have to replenish a lot of the magnesium that is lost. Um, people are also incredibly malnourished when they're on chemotherapy because it makes them nauseous and it decreases their uh, gut's ability to absorb nutrients. And so they're oftentimes nutritionally deprived of the magnesium as well. But again, it is all related to the cancer. And this poor child 
Failure to thrive is typically a diagnosis for much younger ch children. So this this child might uh, might have been very young. Um, and so there, that $22,000, that actually is completely related, again, to the cancer and the chemotherapy. Um, and again, uh, so we've got um, a story here, okay? A very sad story. So what's going on is there's a young child with cancer, likely adrenal cortical carcinoma with metastasis to the bone who underwent chemo and radiation and has associated side effects from the treatment. Okay, so this is the story that comes out of these claims. And I'm just gonna give you the punchline right now. Okay, so what would you as a self-funded plan do about this? What would the insurance carrier do about this? And the punchline is absolutely nothing. There is nothing that you can do as an employer to affect this. And there is nothing that the insurance carrier is going to do to affect this. Because think about this person and their family's lives, right? I mean, they are scared. They're seeing doctors and, and nurses on probably a daily, if not weekly basis. And they're getting all of their direction and guidance from those people. They trust the doctors and the nurses. They are not going to have, like, some outside case manager is not going to have any sway with this family whatsoever. And no outside case manager is going to have any sway with the physician either. Never in my life have I ever seen a physician change their course of treatment because of an insurance company calling them up. And in fact, all it would do is create antagonism with the insurance company. And I have seen, not in cancer, but in the case of a liver patient, where you know, I mean, the physician just right out refused and the insurance carrier was going to have to like not do coverage or whatever. And the, and, the, and the physician was like, look, we will figure this out after the fact and we'll do the appeals and yada, yada, yada. But there is no way I'm transferring this patient to another hospital just so that you can save money. So um, why am I pointing this out? Because it's important when you're looking at your high cost claimants to know where you can intervene and where you cannot. Not all of your high cost claimants are intervenable. Therefore, one should not get caught up in what are we going to do about this high cost claimant. Rather, we should say, okay, is this or is this not an intervenable situation? And if it is not an intervenable situation, then let's move on to, because there's an opportunity cost associated with this, right? If we're going to try to do something about this, like it's, it's spinning our wheels. So let's actually then move on to the types of situations where we can do something. Okay, next liver transplant. This is an actual $388,795 claimant, again, from the same employer that, again, let's look here at how this breaks down. Again, alphabetical, not helpful. So let's look here. Ah, a complicated liver transplant there at $121,000. Okay, so this person had a liver transplant. All right. $81,000 for acute vascular insufficiency of the intestines. Well, that's kind of weird. Why would there be, so that's basically a lack of blood flow to the intestines. That is not a normal occurrence with the with a, with a liver transplant. Blood in stool, again, not necessarily a common um, thing. You uh, Sometimes you can have esophageal varices that bleed a little bit and that can cause blood in stool, but there's something else going on here. And then we have um, altered mental status, okay? So we've got acute pharyngitis. Um, we have uh, a colostomy. Okay, well, that's not normal. Okay, so here, look at what we have. We have a liver transplant with post-op applications of delirium, that's what the altered mental status, intestinal bleeding, blocking of the liver bile ducts 
to the intestines, low blood pressure leading to surgical removal of part of the intestines and placement of an ostomy. And that's a, a bag that you have to have um, out of the side of your abdomen because your intestines no longer empty into your rectum, but instead they empty into uh, this ostomy bag. Okay, incredibly unfortunate situation here. A, somewhat analogous to the cancer patient, this is what you call a train wreck. So this is a disaster. This person is in the ICU, and again, there is nothing that can be done. First of all, you can't even talk to this person. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to call them up? I mean, they are unconscious, or they are um, in delirium. So you literally can't talk to them. So you would have to, and like, um, like you can't get like a HIPAA authorization to like talk to their spouse while the person is like unconscious, unless you like somehow got the HIPAA authorization beforehand, right? So there's no one for you to talk to. Um, now the case manager can talk to the case manager in the ICU, the case manager in the insurance carrier can talk to the floor case manager at the hospital in the ICU. But again, that's just reporting on what's going on at the hospital. It's not to actually intervene on what's going on at the hospital. Like there's nothing that can be done to change the behavior of the people at the hospital at all in order to change. So, so fine. So here there actually are some things you can do, but they, but, but it's really in the form of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and that is okay so this is complicated so there are transplant centers of excellence and insurance carriers try to steer people to transplant centers of excellence however there are major hospital systems that are in network with insurance carriers that do transplants complicated transplants number one is kidney but probably number two is liver and they are not a transplant center of excellence. Therefore, you have an in-network provider, and I will tell you, with these surgeries are incredibly complicated. Surgery in general is very risky, and so the the surgical skill and the expertise, not only of the surgeon but the entire surgical team, and also the floor and the nurses that take care of those patients, plus the post-op hepatologist that's going to be taking care and managing the medical management of this person, like you want that done by people who really know what they're doing by at a center of excellence, either identified by Compass or identified by the carrier. Okay, so and there was an article in the Wall Street Journal um, just I think it was last week about this that when hospitals negotiate their contracts with the insurance carriers, they negotiate for, for all the services within that hospital system. And they put in clauses that say that if you're gonna, if that hospital system is going to be in the network that the insurance carrier cannot steer to or away from them. And so the insurance carrier has been strong-armed into not necessarily steering. Because what you would want to do is you would essentially want to make those, you would want to make those centers of excellence the only in-network transplant centers you would want to make all of the essentially make all of the non-center of excellence transplant centers you'd want to make them non-network because you would not want your employees i certainly would not want my compass employees going to them and so here what you need is navigation and, and steerage within that existing network because the network is so broad that you essentially are putting your plan members uh up to potential clinical risk and you're putting your plan up to financial risk just within that existing network and you know it, it i'll i'll write a blog post on this wall street journal article because it is um it's very serious and this this um this specific specific wall street journal article talks about uh columbia presbyterian hospital in new york city and what used to be called long island jewish health system uh in long island and how 
they actually are highly competitive um, hospital systems with each other and they were forcing the carriers to not do steerage where the carrier in certain situations would actually absolutely want to steer to one of them versus the other. Um, so the, uh, the point here is not to try to fix this after the fact, but try to set this person up for as much success as possible by really them putting them in the hands of absolute experts as it relates to their liver transplant. Okay, next, a hernia. Okay, so what is a hernia? It is something sticking out where it should not. And the most common hernias in men are um, inguinal hernias, which is in the groin, where actually a part of the intestine is actually popping out into the groin. And for women, it's umbilical hernias, and the umbilicus is just a fancy medical term for the belly button. And the number one cause of umbilical hernias in women is pregnancy. During the third trimester, sometimes the uh, small intestines can be pushed through the umbilicus. It doesn't go through the skin but it bulges through there. Or it can be an abdominal hernia where it goes around the rectus sheath, so just to the side of the, of the belly button, okay? Now that's typically taken care of after the delivery, not during the delivery. And so here, okay, so fine, we have a hernia repair with, look at this, post-op infection, non-healing surgical wound, um, uh, a disrupted external operative wound at, $225,000. So in other words, this surgery had complications. So it probably was not an inguinal hernia. It was probably an abdominal hernia. Um, and look at this. DM2. What's that? Type 2 diabetes. Uncontrolled. Uncontrolled. So what does that mean? That means that this person's diabetes so that's, that's a problem in terms of post-operative surgical healing because hyperglycemia actually impairs surgical wounds from healing. So literally the high levels of blood sugar stop the tissues from connecting back together. Likewise, people with diabetes, it has damaged the small uh, blood vessels such that oxygen and nutrients cannot be as effectively delivered to the wound site so it can't heal as well. And then finally, people with diabetes, again, it's type two, so it's most likely related to, to obesity. And so when people are obese, they have a large layer, sometimes inches and inches of adipose tissue, which is fat, underneath their skin. And that adipose tissue causes uh, additional force and stretching and causes it a, a third reason. So you've got three reasons for this person to, to be at higher risk for what's called wound dehiscence. So in other words, the wound opening back up and getting infected. And again, those are disasters. So again, you don't even need, so it's like, it's a hernia. I mean, hernias happen all the time, but the point is this was a hernia in a high risk patient. Hernia repair complicated by post-op infection, abscess, repeat surgery, and prolonged hospital stay in a person with uncontrolled diabetes. So again, it's somewhat similar to that, um, liver transplant example where you have a very large network with a whole bunch of surgeons and you might have various surgeons within one very large hospital system. I guarantee you that not all those surgeons are created equal and they are all quote unquote in network and they are all quote unquote considered high quality. And I guarantee you that if you actually looked at Compass data and the analytics that we look at, like we can separate out who you really want to go to. Okay, so that's what we're getting at here is that you really want to, to use healthcare navigation and steerage as the mechanism to address your high cost claimants beforehand so that you can set them up for success. And you can't 100% get rid of your high cost claimants, of course not, but you're going to decrease 
the you're going to minimize the risk of those disaster train wrecks happening because once those train wrecks have happened the train has left the station there's nothing that you can do about it so we so groups need to be proactive as possible to get people to the the absolute centers of excellence and the best physicians and the best facilities within their existing network so one you have to start early in the care process two let's not kid ourselves you are not going to rely on case management utilization management or disease management it is too late three you're going to steer within the network to high quality cost-effective providers and as you can imagine you're going to do this for high-cost claimants where it's largely elective surgery now what do i mean by elective elective does not always mean optional so in the case of that liver transplant that was not optional i mean they needed to have it but elective does mean that it is scheduled as a, the opposite of elective isn't unelective the uh the opposite of elective is emergent an emergency surgery, obviously you're not gonna have time for steerage. The person is gonna be like incapacitated in the back of an ambulance from like an automobile accident, what have you. But one of the examples that I did not bring up here in um, the specific uh, claims for this group was musculoskeletal. So when you talk about steerage, you really wanna talk about orthopedic and neurosurgery steerage because if, go, if we go back to that earlier slide about MSK, total knee, total hip, and spine surgeries, that is almost always elective. You're dealing with chronic pain that has been going on for weeks to months to years. Okay, so there's not a quote-unquote rush for this. And so this is where you're, you know, you're essentially um, using a mechanism like Compass and our analytics. Some employers even do second opinion programs where those orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons um, are at facilities where they are not reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis, but they are on salary by the hospital. And why is that important? It's important because you do not want to have the perverse financial incentive skewing the clinical judgment of the surgeon. And I don't think that they consciously say to themselves, oh, I'm going to take this person to the OR so I can make more money. But it absolutely will subconsciously uh, affect their decision making. And so, and I would see it in the decision making of the physicians at Hopkins where I trained, they were on salary. They were on salary. So whether they did or did not perform surgery did not affect their income. They were making their decisions to or to not take someone to the OR based upon their clinical judgment and the patient's scans and physical exam, et cetera. And so really why that's important is not because you're going to have quote unquote cheaper knee and hip and spine surgery, but often in cases, and this is what happened with these large employers that had second opinion programs where physicians that were on salary and not fee-for-service reimbursed, is they, the, the physician that was on salary said, the person didn't need surgery at all. Isn't that interesting? And so, to the extent that uh, employers can actually take their networks, which are very big and very large, and you wanna steer to a much more select group inside of that. Now, of course, the key to all of this is employee engagement, okay? And so this is where we're gonna talk about doing this at several levels. So one is the timing of that engagement. Right now, the insurance carrier doesn't know about the vast majority of this until they require the pre-certification for the surgery, okay? The doctor's office is getting that. Again, the train has already left the station. The person is most likely scared. They're emotional. They're in pain. They've established a relationship with a physician. They are probably not going to change in terms of one, you know, going to get a second opinion, going to get it somewhere else. Once they're admitted, once they're discharged, this is all too late. 
However, during the relationship building with the physician, during the decision-making process of what test to order, does the person even need an MRI? The answer, according to Choose Wisely, is oftentimes they don't even need the MRI. So even the decision uh, making in terms of diagnosis is a time to intervene. So the point of this slide is you want to catch people earlier in the process, okay? And you want to meet people where they are. You want to meet employees where they are. Okay, where are they? They're in your Ben Admin platform because they all have to do open enrollment. They're in your wellness platform. They're in your TPA portal. They are in your HRIS system. And so Compass is now able to embed ourselves in these various areas. It's one of the fantastic things about being part of a light now is Compass is actually already embedded within a light's bed admin system. And so you can see here that you can do things like doctor search and cost comparisons, et cetera, within that panel. So especially for much larger employers that have single sign-on, et cetera, it makes it so much more seamless for the, uh, for the employee. Um, we are so excited about this. And it also gives them a seamless way to integrate with their actual health pro, or we can actually put the health pro's pictures right there. And you can send them an email. You can give them a call uh, right there within that one central access point. Because we found, as you can probably imagine, that one of the keys to engagement, and I've talked about this many times, is motivation, ability, and trigger. And oftentimes people talk about you know, the incentives, the disincentives, the penalties, the carrots, et cetera, and that's fine. That only touches on the motivation. The ability and the trigger are two-thirds of the equation. And the key to the ability is it has to be easy. It has to be easy. And so to have somebody hold the employee's hand and to, and to lower the threshold of complexity necessary to get this done is super important. And then lastly, it needs to be triggered through a uh, complex comprehensive communication program, which I've talked about in other uh, webinars as well, which many groups already have through their Ben Admin and HRIS software as well. So we also do this uh, on a standalone basis as well in terms of our Compass navigation. We do have multiple levels of service this year at multiple price points. Uh, you, our customers, have asked for this, and so we now uh, offer it. But let me go back. Because the one more point that I want to uh, say here, too, is, is what we're super excited about for this year as well is that, of course, you, you would want to integrate using those highest quality centers of excellence, et cetera, physicians identified by Compass Analytics and incorporate that into your plan design in terms of things like waiving the deductible or lower levels of coinsurance or no coinsurance or lower dollar copays. And we've actually been able to integrate with several TPAs now such that we are able to do that. And they are using major rented networks as well. So it's like the best of both worlds because it is, um, it is essentially all through one platform, i.e. the TPA's platform, but it gives you the flexibility to be able to um, really get the network discounts that you know and love, and those are important. I don't want to diminish those at all, but the absence of steerage and navigation with a large network is a recipe for disaster, and so, especially when it comes to high-cost claimants. And so this is a way to narrow, and, and of course, what, what's great is that with these TPAs, we've been able to adjust, okay, well, how strict do you want to make that more, sort of network within a network? Sometimes it's highly strict, 
Sometimes it's more uh, lax. And so we know that different companies have different levels of incentives and punishments that they would want to use for their groups. So again, we meet the groups where they are in terms of how stringent those requirements are. So with that, um, we obviously have our Compass blog, um, which many of you already subscribed to. We thank you so much for that. I do want to tell you that Alight does their own webinars as well, and we're super excited to have the Journey to Consumer-Driven Health, FSAs to HRAs to SHA, uh, HSAs this Thursday in just two days. And if you go to alight.com slash webinars, you will be able to um, register for that webinar as well, and it's at 12 noon central time. And as I told you, you can email me for a copy of these slides, so ericb at compassphs.com. Now, you have been super patient with me and you have asked lots of questions. And so I will now go through and attempt to answer these to the best of my ability. Some of you have asked for the slides, so please do email me at ericb at compassphs.com for a copy of the slides. I'll be happy to email those uh, back uh, for you. Uh, in terms of what was done to reduce the trend in that group, it, they specifically used Compass to connect people with a primary care physician that they had to establish care with uh, for an annual physical, and we saw their primary care utilization go up. And again, that specialist utilization was high, but it's actually lower than it was in the past because people actually started using more primary care. Again, getting people earlier in the process. And to a certain extent, it's unknown, but to a certain extent, those high-cost claimants were actually averted because the high blood pressure and the undiagnosed diabetes and the, hyper and the high cholesterol were identified and treated by the primary care physician before they manifested themselves as symptoms. They went to a specialist or had a catastrophe. And so it was a combination of one, greater utilization of primary care, and then two, network maximization through the price transparency and the quality transparency of Compass. So that got them to flat, so that's pretty good. You gotta keep like chipping away at these things. Um, and certainly there are many groups that would be more than happy uh, with uh, flat. Um, what industry is the case study from? So this was from a technology company. Um, and the this group, I would say, had a fairly uh, typical PCP visit profile to start where their number of PCP visits was about only about a third of their employee population had actually seen a PCP in the prior two years. Pretty typical um, for, uh, for groups that we have. And um, now, it uh, in that first year, it was like 50, 60%. So it wasn't like 100% right out of the gate. But to have close to a doubling in their, uh, in their PCP utilization in just one year is quite an accomplishment. And we see, especially for these groups that don't have as high turnover, that year over year over year over year, you slowly increase that uh, that PCP utilization, which is which is really the right way. Again, it's part of a multi-pronged strategy to decrease those high cost claimants. Um, And so in terms of the example of a, of a broker or, or, or folks uh, incentivizing their employees to go to a PCP, so again, this was part of their sort of um, uh, wellness requirement, if you will. You had to do several things, you know, health risk assessment, bio, biometrics. The biometrics were usually done at the PCP's office. We've even seen folks to make their um, 
programs simpler. So they're actually, in certain cases, getting rid of the health risk assessments and the biometrics, and they're just doing establishing care with a PCP. That's also helping with their ER visits because if you can, and it's also being done in conjunction with telemedicine as well. So doing both a combination of telemedicine and establishing care with a primary care physician has allowed them to uh, uh, avoid uh, ER visits as well. Of course, it doesn't go to zero, but it decreases that as well because once you establish care with a primary care physician, they are going to be able to like answer the phone and you call in and be like, hey, I got a UTI. Can you call in some antibiotics? The person's like, sure or get a same day or next day appointment. If you have established care with a PCP, you can do that. If you have not established care with a PCP, you cannot do that. Um, and uh, the New York Times uh, article, I will, if you email me um, uh, for the slides, I'll also send a link to that. And it wasn't New York Times, by the way, it was Wall Street Journal. I'm sorry if I misspoke. Um, I'll email you a link to that article as well. Um, how are clients conducting audits for, for medical necessity and appropriateness? So that's super hard. Um, I would say I have not uh, seen an employer uh, effectively do that because really to do it effectively, you need to see the chart. Um, the claims themselves are not enough. And so it would really have to be done through the carrier or the TPA. They would actually have to request the chart from the hospital and oftentimes from the, uh, the physician as well, right? Because a lot of that documentation is in the outpatient clinic. It's not in the hospital. Um, so, it's, um, so it can be done. Um, but just you, but, but I, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, it cannot be done on the claims alone. It, need, it needs the retrospective chart, re chart review as, as well. Um, how can we do a market check against Medicare to make sure we are paying in alignment and not hyperinflated? Well, Peter, uh, that's an excellent question. And my short answer to you is, and I'm not trying to be a uh, flip in this comment is that you're basically overpaying because, and there's been, you know, you know, even the network discounted rates of an insurance carrier are upwards of 150, 200, 300% of Medicare. So like an allowed amount for an echocardiogram in network with a major carrier is like 800 bucks and Medicare reimbursement for an echocardiogram is like 160. So, um, and that's, and you know, and this is, we talked about this in previous webinars. I mean, that's a whole nother argument for Medicare cost plus uh, pricing or reference-based pricing uh, because the Delta is just, um, it's just so different. Uh, and so with that, you guys have been super, um, super attentive and it is approaching an hour now. And so with that, I want to thank, thank you so much for giving me the most important thing that you have, which is your time and attention. And I wish you all a fantastic rest of your week, a fantastic open and annual enrollment and a fantastic beginning to your plan year uh, on January 1. Bye now.